Pro Photography Podcast. We're, I'm Gavin Syme, and it's episode 208, January 2nd, 2024. Welcome to the New Web Pro Photography Podcast, where we talk about what's new, what's old, and what works for professional and enthusiast photographers. Find show notes, videos, and more at simonfx.com slash podcast. Welcome back, ProPhoto Show listeners. It is a new year, and I know there's been a little delay on the episodes, but don't worry. After bringing back Pro Photography Podcast after nearly a 10-year hiatus from the old classic ProPhoto Show 1.0 episodes, I'm not giving up on you guys. It's just been a little busy if you follow my newsletters and my blog posts and the stuff going on over on my pages over at SimeEffects.com. You know, I've just had a lot going with the Black Friday stuff, a lot of my products over at uh, SimeEffects.com, keeping up with those. But most of the work going into my new Filmus 2 pack, which is my film emulations pack, been shooting a lot of film the past couple months to refine those 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 recipes for the lots the capture one styles the presets and you guys can check those out that's what keeps me going over here it's what keeps the show going keeps the youtube channel going and these film is two presets I, they're kind of my go-to and they're nothing that you're going to find just floating around there and they're nothing that you're going to get in just a, a, a quick edit because i've been refining these for five years and now that 2.0 out is out i'm I'm really proud of them but i, I won't go on about that that's kind of why i've been so busy and not been getting another show out the past month is is just the christmas the black friday getting the new product out and i'm back here and we're talking about what is coming in 2024 because photography is going to have some changes this year and I think some of those are going to be important changes, maybe not all good, but but certainly not all bad as we come into 2024. Today, I'm going to talk about some experiments I've actually been doing. And if you follow the YouTube channel, you've seen some of these, but I've been doing some further research into this AI stuff to kind of talk to you guys about it. I know it's been coming up a lot, but this is a huge topic in photography how our images are being used, where the lines should be drawn and all of this stuff. And it's important for us as image creators, we don't want to be going through the same thing in our, our own photography businesses and projects that happened when digital came, where a lot of photographers just kind of ignored it. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today, but we're going to talk about the news, some of the interesting things that I've come across, uh, talk a little bit about about gear and the stuff going on. Do you do you need a new camera in 2024 or are you fine? And just get into some fun things to kick the year off right. I know I didn't get in there with Christmas Roundtable. All the shows up to this point, here we are, episode 208. All the shows have just been me, kind of like those very first Pro Photo Show episodes back before 2010. And you know what? This year, we're, we're bringing people on. I actually have a list. I've been working on a panel of getting people in. And actually, if, if you think you have something to contribute and you might be interested in being on a future Pro Photo Show roundtable, shoot an email to ProPhotoshow at gmail.com and uh, and tell me why and or just shoot me an email anyway and just just say hello as the podcast we bring it back i'm going to be bringing back those round tables because when there's a group here the discussions are just more interesting and we have more fun 
And so I've been kind of taking my time trying to make sure I have systems in order, trying to get the feeds back running, make sure you guys are subscribed. Hope you're spreading the word. But we're doing we're doing roundtables this year. So stay tuned for those because I'm working on pulling them together. Let's get right into today's episode and talk about uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. There is going to be more and more coming, right? We have chips. I was I was going to one of my favorite photo news sites, Petapixel. And by the way, I'm, I'm no AI, just skimming things from the Internet. If I mention an article, it will be linked in the show notes over at ProPhotoShow.com. I was reading these articles about AIs are starting to be integrated into the sensor, like the processing. Typically, there's the sensor of the camera and then it goes to processing. And now we're going to start seeing this on sensor processing and AI integrated into these smartphone cameras. It just kind of makes me think as I look at this what's coming for smartphone cameras. A lot of you might be using iPhones. I, I kind of dumped Apple a few years ago for lots of reasons. The, the anti-repairability, the, this is the closed-off system, and I switched to Android. And for the past few years, I've been using the Samsung flagship phones. Uh, and I might switch from that because I don't like a lot of Samsung's policies either. But the advantage of being on Android is that if I do switch... It's still Android. Even if it's a different system within Android, I could switch to, to Sony. I could switch to Huawei, and it would be the same system. So I, I definitely like the more open platform of Android. But the cameras are really what I look at when I upgrade a smartphone. A lot of it is is for doing videos. If I'm doing a photo session, I'm not taking the phone out, although it's pretty amazing what we can do on a cell phone. And as we see these chips get better and better and better, and you can crop in and you have 8K, all this stuff on a phone, does buying a new camera matter? Does does these big, important cameras matter? And that that bit of news actually led me into this article over from Creative Block talking about flagship cameras and are they becoming unaffordable is is is, there's discussions coming off from this like should you just buy should you just buy used cameras right and as these cameras have matured i remember back in the days of you know like the 10d the 20d the 30 then the 5d mark ii came out people started doing video on dslr cameras you could do live view on dslr cameras remember these weren't mirrorless they still had a mirror that flipped up and so when you were in live view mode, it wasn't like these live view sensors we have now. And there's just still a few DLSL SLRs out there, but almost everything switched to mirrorless. I switched to mirrorless in, I think, 2015 when I switched to Sony with the A7R2. Phenomenal camera. And I still have a Sony camera for full frame. You look at these Sony cameras and basically this article saying like it's not like it used to be. The cost of bodies is getting so expensive. Cost of lenses is so much. This article claims that, you know, the cost of cameras has nearly doubled. I, th- I think that's an, maybe an exaggeration. I suppose it depends on how you run the data. I have an A7, what is it, an A7 III? And that's what I shoot most of my YouTube videos with, right? But I also have Fuji. That's my compact camera. And I actually use my Fujis much more. I love the aesthetics of the Fuji cameras. They're small. They, they produce great results. I don't buy Fuji cameras for the, the film emulations. Uh, if I'm going to do a film emulation, I do it in post-production. With with a profile, it's fine, but I just go straight to Filmist, honestly, because I have more control that way. So I would say do not buy a camera over its in-camera profiles, 
because you should be shooting raw anyway most of the time. The only exception to that is when I'm shooting my X100V. I have three Fuji cameras. When I shoot the X100V for street photography, I shoot RAW and JPEG side by side, just in case I wanna I wanna grab it and upload it real quick or something like that. But I don't I don't hang on to all those JPEGs. I just save my RAWs and I move from there. So what am I getting at here? What I'm thinking about as I read these articles, and I'm thinking about what I paid for my A7 III, okay? About two grand. I think it was two grand, 19.99. And if you go now and you look at what an A7 IV cost a few years later, more like five years later, it's $2,500. So that's certainly not double, but it's gone up a lot. Uh, you can look at these Fuji cameras. A Fuji X-T5 right now is $16.99. I have an X-T3 still. I, I might grab an X-T5 this year. Um, but it's not essential. Is there some things improved? Yeah, mostly I would say more megapixels is kind of cool, but not essential for most people. With 24, 26 megapixels, you're still going to be able to make those wall prints, print those nice 40-inch, 36 inches for your clients. But having used an A7R2 that was for, what, 42 megapixels, uh, and I use that for a lot of my landscapes and big prints from that, yeah, it made a difference on those big prints to have 40 megapixels, and it's full frame, of course. Is full frame that much better than a crop sensor? No, not really. There's some advantages in low light and things like that, but there's so much paranoia. I've done videos about this, and I'll actually link a video, uh, stop, stop denoising so much. And I did a video this year on the page where we looked at the denoise abilities, but also just adding some grain back in or utilizing the grain that's in the image. One thing you learn if you if you go out and shoot some film, and I've shot quite a bit of film this year for working on the new Filmus project and getting those presets right. But in shooting film, you realize, yeah, there's there's grain, there's texture, and that's okay. What's happened is people get so obsessed with noise reduction, and even with like AI noise reduction tools, you got like Topaz, the AI noise reduction on RAW files in Lightroom is phenomenal now. It actually makes even Fuji files you can get a cleaner file in Lightroom than you can even in Capture One with that AI noise reduction, which is a bit slow, but it does a phenomenal job. And so there's a time to use that. But you know what I'll do? Anytime I'm using noise reduction, I'll be trying to get rid of that kind of digital grittiness, but then I'll add a little grain back in. And obviously you're editing. You can do that or you can not do it. But I can usually tell when people have used a bunch of noise reduction and then didn't put any grain back in. Not only do you lose detail, you get this kind of unnatural pasty feel. I think film, I've talked about this on my blog post, and it's one of the reasons that I, even though I make a lot of tools and actions and presets and all this stuff, when it comes to a go-to preset pack, I'll a lot of times go to Filmist. Uh, and if you follow my work, you know that, that I've been making tools for Lightroom and Photoshop all the way back to the Lightroom One days and was one of the first people out there. This was long before it was trendy for internet marketers to make packs of a thousand crappy presets that you can download. And a lot of new photographers coming in, you know, the, you kind of get the people on the groups in Facebook where there's a lot of trolls and a lot of people trying to show off. And they're like, oh, I never use presets. I would never do that. I always at my own. I always edit my own. I, I would never use a preset. And it's a 20-year veteran. I'm just kind of shaking my head like, okay, <laughs> um, so what do you actually do for a living then? Because it's not photography. And I always am going to go when I edit, whether it's Capture One, whether it's Lightroom, whether you're using some other software, you should always be going to a preset. Because those, even if you're making your own, don't get me wrong, you, you can 
you can use free presets. You kind of get what you pay for, although there are some free presets. There's sampler packs of even like my new Filmus pack where you can download some of my new Filmus presets. And I'll link those in the comments and just play with those for free and get some good presets. But you can make your own. That's fine. The point is these professional editing tools are designed to let us edit. You want tools that give you a grounding, that give you a baseline, right? So I might go to natural HDR for dynamic range. I have a pack of presets for that. I have all these separate packs of presets like silver five is a version five. Now it's an amazing black and white kit. I have a street pack. I have my gold chrome. I won't go on about that. I'm not turning this into an ad. What I'm saying is I'll start with this base edit but I'll almost always put a little bit of grain on or I'll take that grain off and go into Photoshop and do some more deeper editing with actions, maybe black room, maybe manual edits and put some grain in atmosphere that way. I don't want a pasty clean image. This mindset that now we need to upgrade. Now we need to upgrade. It's not like it was in the 10D, 20D, 30D. Then we went to 5D Mark T, D, 5D Mark two, right? Of the Canon big generational shift, 24 megapixels, a lot better handling of noise. The old cameras really struggled with noise and all this stuff. The new cameras, X-T5 came out, and I'm like, okay, I'd like that, but I don't have the cash right now for it. I got other priorities. My X-T3, you can't tell the difference. It works just great. Is the focusing a little better on the new one? Sure. Does it have some more megapixels? Sure. I think people are starting to get over this mindset of, I, I just always need a new camera. If you remember the film days, you would buy a camera and you'd use it for a decade. You didn't go buy a new camera every one or two years, right? With a camera body, you don't even really need one every three years. I buy a camera body when it offers me something that's genuinely going to improve my work. Just like this trend of I have to buy a new cell phone every year is going away. Every couple of years, I'll get a new cell phone because the cameras improve and there's there's something better and especially we're still seeing improvements in things like low light video and stuff like that on these mobile phones. But if I'm going out to do a serious session, I pull out a real camera, but it doesn't have to be the newest. The client doesn't know the difference between an X-T3 and an X-T5 or an X-T5 and, and the latest Sony or the latest Canon or the latest Nikon. It's not what makes your photos. So then then you come to lenses. Do you need to buy new cameras? No. Maybe it's an exaggeration that camera bodies have doubled, but I've definitely noticed this trend of these cameras and pro lenses, especially like Sony lenses, the top-end pro lenses. They just get more, more expensive. Canon did the same thing. There's still quite a few lenses for Fuji because it's a smaller sensor. It's an advantage. It doesn't handle uh, like a compact uh, point-and-shoot, right? You have this real camera with these kind of organic dials and buttons. That's why I like shooting Fuji. But because it's a it's a 1.5 crop sensor, the lenses don't have to be as heavy. They don't have to be as glass heavy. They don't have to be as expensive. Sure, my best lenses for my Fuji are still 800, 1,000 bucks. And you can spend more than that, of course. But a 50 millimeter prime 1.4 on the Fuji is like, what, $400? They've gone up too. I've been noticing the price is edging up. But it's a really great lens and it's not a ton of money. And so I think, for a lot of people, hey, if you're looking at getting a kit, don't just think about the body, think about the lenses. And talking about lenses, you got to think, okay, realistically, what do these cost? But this brings up another issue. If you follow people that do like cinema work, they make movies, things like that, you'll all them see them talking about, you know, these classic lenses they use. They'll use vintage lenses. People convert vintage photographic lenses to cinema lenses, give them the right numbers, the right attachments, the right focus pulls, things like that. I started getting into vintage lenses three or four years ago, and 
while I have my base lenses, what this did for me is get into vintage lenses. And these are going up in price, too, because all this stuff, because bodies are getting more expensive. And I saw a spinoff article from this creative block article. I'll link both of these uh, on Petapixel, basically saying like secondhand market is becoming more and more important as these cameras increase in price. And that's true. You can go out and you can buy an X-T3, let's say, for a lot less, for, for probably half the price of an X-T5. And, and it's not going to look that different. It's your, it's your character. It's your style. Then you can say, with that extra money, hey, I'm going to get one or two lenses. And then with just a little more, maybe get, you know, two primes. Get a 50 prime. If you want to spend a little more, get the 90 F2 uh, on the Fuji. Uh, or the 51 too. I said 51 four, but it's the, it's the F2 Fujis that are a really good value. And they look great. They work great for portraits. They're small. They're easy to carry. The 90 millimeter F2. So that would be a 135 millimeter equivalent. Perfect portrait lens. I use that constantly for portraits. It's my go-to and it's a little more expensive. Now you can get zooms and all this stuff. There's some great zooms on the Fuji lineup, but I pretty much only use primes these days, except for I have, uh, a zoom, a 24 to 105 zoom on the Sony, just so I have kind of a practical lens for going out if I'm doing video and things like that. But this secondhand market is really something to look at. Don't think, regardless of whether you're new, whether you're a veteran, whether you have a studio, that it's all about the new camera body. Because I'm realizing more and more, and if you follow some of the things I post on our Shadow Hackers group over on Facebook, on my videos, I'm really searching for ambience, for texture, for realism in photos. I have these great lenses and I have some really great lenses for my Sony. I even have, what is it? The 16 to 35 to eight, which is this razor sharp lens. I still have my Canon tilt shift 24 millimeter edition two, which I don't mainly shoot with Canon. My 5d Mark two has been converted to infrared. And so I can use that there, but that old manual focus lens. I, I use that on my Sony. I bought it for Canon, kept it when I went to Sony, and I can still mount that to my Sony's and to my Fuji camera if I want that tilt shift control. It's a manual focus lens. But the key with that is it was razor, razor sharp, sharpest lens I've ever owned. I also have a prime 16 to 35 Sony 2.8. Paid a lot for that full frame lens. Don't use it that much. It's a great lens. Sure, if I'm going out doing landscapes or something like that, maybe I want the sharpest lens I can get. Maybe, depending on what I want to do. You can make big prints without the sharpest lens. The lenses I find, the new lenses, a lot of them are kind of sterile. And so I find myself going to these old lenses, these old Fujinons, old Canon FE mounts. Uh, some of my favorites are the Minolta Rockers. I have a bunch of Minolta Rocker lenses. I have the Olympus, the Olympus original OM2. I have an OM2 that I shoot film on. I have like three or four regular 35 millimeter film cameras I use. But all the lenses, the cool thing about those is I can go out and shoot a roll of film, but all those lenses also adapt. So I get these classic iconic lenses that usually cost $50, $250, right? For 50 primes, 28, 28s. Yes, there are some classic vintage lenses when you get into the 1.2s and things like that that are these super legend lenses. And But most of those you can still get for like $500. Now, we're talking all manual focus on these kind of lenses, but... It's not really that hard. Is my hit rate better if I put a Sony 80 millimeter 1.8 or a, a Fuji 90 millimeter F2 on my camera? Yeah, obviously I'm getting more. So when I go out on a shoot personally, I usually have a couple lenses 
that are my modern autofocus lenses that work on whatever camera I'm using, the native glass. But I don't need every lens they make because I get bored of those lenses. I'll put on an old Helios Russian lens because of its messy bokeh, because it's soft, because that sharpness a lot of times you just end up taking away in post anyhow. You see this in movies. You see this in cinema. You see this with great portrait photographers. I've actually been working on some David Hamilton inspired effects, and he had this really soft kind of contrasty. Uh, he was actually famous for like putting goo on his lens, like Vaseline or hairspray. You can take, I wouldn't put it directly on your lens. You can actually try this, take your razor sharp lens. And next time you go to do a portrait session, just take a UV filter, take a can of hairspray, you spray it in the air, and then you just kind of take your filter and kind of run it through the air. Right. And you can do that once or twice. Don't spray it directly on because it'll be too much. And you'll see that you've, just turned that UV filter into a soft filter. And it, it actually gives a really great effect. But that way, it's not squirting hairspray on your lens. You can just rinse off that UV filter when you're done. And so you had iconic film photographers that did things like this. If you do Vaseline, obviously, it's going to be a bit more intense. But you can get the effect of basically a, like a Pro Mist soft. And sure, you can buy a softening filter like a, a black Pro Mist or something like that. I use those also. The thing is, if you're doing your own filter for that day, for that shoot, you can get something a little unique. It's different every time. Why is that important? We're going to see that more and more, I think, this year in this AI world where things are more and more fake, doing things that are real, practical effects are still popular in movies. Why? Because because we're doing real things. People are getting tired of AI and CGI and fakery everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. It doesn't connect with our souls. Real things connect with with how we feel, with who we are as human beings. And I think we're going to see that. I've been saying that on the show all year. I think we're going to see that coming back more. And I'll keep reiterating that. So I like shooting film. It's really real. It's organic. It's raw. Right. doesn't mean I shoot all film. But hey, the same vintage lens. In fact, I'll do this when I'm testing Filmus. And I hope to do some more videos of comparing films with digital, with other films, all this kind of stuff. I've just been so busy this year uh, for the past like three months working on Filmist too. But I would go out and use the same lens. And this was pretty cool. I would go out with a OM2 or an Olympus, right? Some of these, these film cameras you see on my channel. Load a roll of film and I could take the same lens, shoot it on film, and then put it on the X-T3. And I could do these exact side-by-side -side comparisons of film and digital, which for me was really useful because I'm creating that same aesthetic for my edits. And for you guys that use my presets, you're going to get that, that real film feel. So I'm adjusting clarity and grain. We think we always need to push clarity up. We need to push texture up. It's actually usually the opposite, I found. When these tools came out, and this is the problem, it's this push-to-the-right mindset. Push your sliders up. More exposure. More contrast more shadow lift, right? But actually pulling things to the left a lot of times, pulling the shadows down. If you guys have been to my Shadow Hacker workshop, and by the way, there's one coming up at the end of this week. I'm going to bring in, I'm bringing back the Shadow Hacker workshops. I took a little hiatus for those for the holidays as well. And uh, so that I could focus, have a little Christmas time. And by the way, I hope you all had a Merry Christmas and that Happy New Year as we come into this new year. But for me, these side-by-side -side tests really allow me to kind of see what I'm doing as I'm designing effects and tools and editing tools. But it's more than that because it really helps me connect with the organic side of photography, which is why I love shooting film. 
And vintage lenses do that as well. You're getting back to something that's not trying to be hyper sharp, hyper clarity, push the sliders up. The truth is, if you look at a film and that classic look of, say, a Portra 400, I, I spend a ton of time on Portra films and getting those dialed in because they're very popular. I do a lot of other films as well, but those are films I can still get. And so I can invest even more time in those. I shot all the portraits these past couple of months in various situations, street photography, portraits, shot the Ektar, right? Uh, and I got a bunch of rolls sitting on the shelf behind me that I'm going to be doing more testing for more, more updates, more free updates on Filmist 2. But as I shoot these, you see me sharing some of these on the Facebook page over at Sime Effects, uh, in my blog posts, in my videos. And we're getting kind of these these role reviews almost, which I hope to do some of those as well for those of you that, that love to go out and shoot film. But what happens when you take these vintage lenses, which are cheap, you're not only tapping into the used market, you're tapping into markets that are decades old. And these lenses, I don't sell my my vintage lenses or my vintage film cameras anymore because they're actually gaining in value more and more as more people come back to them. Does that mean you're going to switch your whole business? Oh, I'm going to shoot film for everything. No, I go out shooting when I'm like, I want to shoot some film whether it's just for fun or because I want to do some testing. I, I throw a film camera around my neck. I throw a digital camera around my neck. I go shoot both. If I go out to a portrait session, if the light's right, right, we have a lot more ISO flexibility on, on digital. Sure, I can put portrait 800 and push it two stops, but it's going to be pretty intense. On digital, we can just move the ISO around. So I'll go out into a session and have that film, have the digital. When the light's good, when things are working, I'm like, hey, I'm going to nail these. I'll use it. I'll, I'll burn a little film. Sure, it's going to cost me 50 bucks a roll by the time it's all said and done. And you might say, why is it worth you get 36 exposures and it costs like $50? That's crazy. What you got to understand at film is your hit rate increases yet again. You focus a lot with film. You, you're aware. So you become more self-aware of your photos. Even if you're shooting 35 millimeter film, I've talked a lot about the, the intensity of shooting like large format film, like on my Linhoff. But even shooting 35, you focus. It doesn't make me want to switch everything to film. It makes me shoot digital better. Then I start editing my digital with more film-like concepts. It doesn't mean I never do HDR and push the file. It doesn't mean I never do a more gritty look. It doesn't mean I never go to my actions or go to my presets that do cinematic blue and oranges and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean I don't push the creativity. It means I get this sort of grounding just like when you use film presets, they give you a grounding in your editing that's not just pushing the saturation. I see this so often in the groups now, and I, I cringe now when I see just digital oversaturated stuff. And I know a lot of this is newer photographers coming in, they're exploring the fact that they have all these sliders. But I was there, like a lot of you, when digital arrived on the scene. And we, we all kind of went crazy over it. We had selective color and pushed the saturation over the top, and everything was just kind of gross and over the top, like AI is doing right now. Uh, doesn't mean there's never a place for pushing the saturation or pushing your contrast or doing crazy amounts of dynamic range or bracketing, although I rarely do that anymore. If if I edit and I use speed masks correctly in Lightroom, use a good process like a natural HDR preset or something like that, or a manual edit, I can pull the dynamic range out of a raw file just fine without bracketing. This isn't 2010 anymore, and the sensors are very powerful. Because of that, you don't need the newest camera, is what I'm getting at in this whole secondhand market concept. And what I'm suggesting is that rather than saying, I need the, the newest camera this year, ask yourself, what kind of lenses do I have? Do I have any vintage glass? Am I doing anything that makes me slow down, makes me more organic, that makes me more intentional? 
in my creativity using manual focus using interesting bokehs that come with an old lens like a helios which you can pick up on ebay really cheap all the all the cool thing about these lenses if i buy a fuji lens or a sony lens it works on that camera because they're made for that mirrorless camera they're native they're fast they're good and sure i use those you want a couple native lenses with your body but all these old 35 lenses, I can put those on any of my cameras. I can put them on the Canon infrared. I can put them on the Sony. I can put them on the Fuji. Because all you got to do is buy the $15, $15, $20 adapter. They're not autofocus. They're all manual. You get an old vintage lens. You just buy the adapter for that lens that goes to that camera. So I have dozens of these adapters, right? Because I have lenses, Yashica lenses. I have Olympus lenses. I have old Fuji lenses, old Minolta lenses, all these old lenses. And I just have an adapter that works for each each mount type and you can get half a dozen of these and all their adapters for less money than than most native glass these days it is a bit outrageous how much these cost and i think this article is interesting i'll link these articles because i know i really spun off into a little bit of a tangent but i think the opportunity of of use gear and this is something we're seeing even with older digital cameras I'm seeing a lot of YouTube videos where people are getting old, like PowerShot G9s and old digital cameras that the sensors are nothing like the new ones. And they like them because they have a retro feel. I, I, we're As artists, we're very nostalgic. And as humans, we're very nostalgic. So you see people getting old cameras. I mean, pretty soon my 5D Mark II is going to be valuable again, probably, because it's a classic sensor, right? People get nostalgic about it just like they do with with the sets, with with discs right laser discs on movies with vinyl with film and so i think nostalgia is not a bad thing i think it can help us be creative i think whatever tool inspires you and sometimes you're like hey you know what i want a new lens this year i want a new camera this year and if that's what gets you fired up right i bought a fuji x100v which is harder to get now and more expensive but it wasn't that expensive of a camera when they're available at normal price they're not that expensive even though it's not an interchangeable lens, I use it a lot. It's that fixed 35 millimeter equivalent length, but it's this phenomenal compact camera. I feel good. It's it's kind of got that Leica feel, but for us normal people that don't want to just spend outrageous amounts of money for a camera that does mostly the same thing. And no offense to you Leica users. If, if you love Leica and that's what inspires you, that's fine. It doesn't matter if it's the most practical thing. Just like an old vintage manual focus lens or a, th a film camera isn't always the most practical, but we're creating creative content and it's important to, to be inspired. And so find the things that inspire you as a photographer. Uh, and that's kind of why I focused and led through this whole tangent in the news, starting with the AI and, and smartphone cameras to the cost of new camera bodies and lenses and all the way through into these different things we can do because it all comes full circle even to the way i'm editing i'm reducing detail a lot of times on these sharp lenses to bring the focus to the subject because if you see everything you see nothing if the focus of your image right if i go out and this goes back to the wall portrait discussion days and studying how to do open spaces how to use elements you know if you take up a, a photo of someone in the park you don't want to see all the clutter and all the trees. There have to be supporting cast. There's only one subject in a great photo. There's only one subject in a great photo. This is something I say in my workshops, in my Shadow Hackers classes, which you can sign up for one of my free online Shadow Hackers. You can get a free ticket for one of those over at uh, simefx.com forward slash Shadow Hackers. And I mention that a lot. I try to do one of those. I haven't done one in like a month because of the holiday season. 
but I, I try to do one every few weeks because it's a paradigm shift once you once you understand shadow hacking. But we also talk about this concept of really emphasizing the emotion, the ambience, and making sure your focus is on the subject. We do that how? With focus, with shadow, with detail. Where's the detail? Where are the eyes drawn? How is the color used in relation to the tone? Stuff that you can spend years experimenting on, but if you go to the shadow, which is kind of the root of letting us see light and detail in our subject, it all comes together. And yet if I have this big wide scene with all this detail in it, and it's so sharp, I'm drawn away from my subject, right? So why do you come in? You have a lens that doesn't vignette. It's clean. It's razor sharp. And then you add a vignette. Why? To make the, why are you reducing the quality? Because you're trying to focus on your subject. I'll use a vignette all the time if it'll help focus on my subject. Or the more intense version of that is actually manually burning and dodging using luminosity masking. Or in my case, I use lumist actions. Uh, and, and control the tone so I can select and control the zones, manual burning and dodging in Photoshop or whatever your pixel editor app of choice outside the raw file is. You can always take your image to a neck, another level by doing a layer edit like that on your best work. So my best work, sure, I'll use Lightroom presets all day long, but my best work before I go to print is always going to go into Photoshop. I'm going to use actions. I'm going to use layers. I'm going to burn and dodge to bring out those tones and make sure the focus is where I want. That might include... Toning things down, blurring, making it software. I've been actually doing quite a bit of research on the the David Hamilton look, who he's kind of a controversial photographer, but he did these beautiful ambience-filled images, these portraits. And I'll I'll try to link something to that if if you're not familiar with his work or if you are, uh, but I'll I'll put a link to just uh so you can kind of see the look he did. A, he did a lot of kind of these creative uh, nudes and things like that. But usually they were in a scene. They were generally in this very like a sunset scene. They were, you know, he, he was kind of the original photographer, I think, that did these kind of artistic but beautiful sensual photos of like a woman hanging clothes on the clothesline kind of thing that you see a lot of these on Instagram now. But this was kind of his style, but it was usually very soft, light rays very glowing. And so I've been uh, working on that. In fact, one of my users of my products is like, hey, do you think it's possible? This is a really difficult look to create. Do you make an action that would create the David Hamilton look? And I've been tinkering with that. It's not something that's available on my site at this point, but I've been working on that in a sense of the aesthetic, right? The noise, the grain, the ambience, the softness of the way the light glows. That's something you can do in Photoshop. And even though it's actually a very complex look, he did it in camera, of course, uh, with organic filters and hairspray, Vaseline, you know, whatever he used. But a lot of what went into it was the aesthetic of how he used the shadow and the light to do that. This is something that newer photographers often confuse with. I've actually been getting some really good results with my experimental actions. But they work the best on the photos that kind of have that backlit feel, that have that glow of sunset. And a lot of times as photographers, you should use the best tools you can get. But let's not forget that it's ultimately how we use the shadow and how that lets us see the light in camera. That's why I emphasize this so much in my shadow hackers workshops. I make money selling effects and it lets me keep being creative and keep pushing further. But that's not what makes your photo. Those let you be more efficient. They let you try new things. They let you see things that you and visualizations that you wouldn't have tried otherwise. 
but the real photo starts in the camera. So if you take a flat, boring photo in the shade with no glimmer, no light rays, no nothing, and then you apply a phenomenal action that maybe I've designed to give you, you know, this this classic, iconic art portrait look, it, it might make the photo better. It will, because I'm, I mean, of course, I make my actions good, but you're not going to have that style. Now, I'm not trying, I'm not suggesting you should go out and look at David Hamilton's work or any other photographer and try and do exactly the same, but you should be inspired by things. But ultimately, the best inspiration is, is what we put to work in our cameras. And we'll talk about that more in, in the next Shadow Hackers workshop. Uh, that does bring me, I know technically this has all been the news segment, but we've kind of rolled into the main topic because I've taken these bits that I saw in the news and what I, what I thought about them and connected them to how we're actually shooting, what's happening right now in photography as, as we try to navigate a world of, of AI and all this kind of stuff. And on the next show, we'll talk about more because I actually have gone in for the sake of knowing I'm not going to bury my head in the sand and say, oh, no, AI is stupid. I'm not going to use it. I've been going out and finding these apps and downloading these apps that the AI photographers are using. And for editing, right, photographers that use AI, but also people that are making AI art, as they call it from scratch. There's a lot of controversy around this and it's really interesting. It's scary, almost disturbing how good these AI are are getting and what you can do. And because I've gone long on kind of this topic of what camera we should use as you know the news about these cameras and the fact that we don't really need them and I think these camera makers and cell phone companies are getting concerned like they're going to have to start innovating. We don't need to buy a new cell phone every year. We don't need a new body every two or three years. They're working fine. I'm sure they would love to start charging us for subscriptions on these cameras, just like they're trying to do on cars and all kinds of other things so that we never own anything. But I, for one, won't be going for that. I won't be buying. I I can totally see this coming. A camera that unless you pay $19.95 a month, it strips to basic features and you can only shoot JPEG. But it's a great camera. If you pay the subscription, you get all the features. I can really see this coming with the corporate landscape that we're seeing now where they want to charge us every month for everything and never have us use everything. And they say, you know, corporate responsibility and protect the environment, but they sell us electric cars that in 10 or 15 years are literally landfill material because the cost to put a new battery in them is more than the value of the car. We're seeing a lot of corporate scamming going on in the name of innovation and this kind of gets into all this kind of stuff like that you see talked about if you follow tech channels, people like Lewis Rasmussen, Right to Repair. I actually saw another news article where even though this is kind of op topic, somebody bought this electric car. It was only a couple years old, but because they hit a rock in the road or something, the de- dealer was saying, oh, you need to replace the battery. They wanted like $60,000 for the battery. It was more than the cost of the brand new car. What we need to recognize is we don't need to follow the hype for the latest camera. I see things like the latest GoPro, the latest Insta360, the latest Sony, and all these YouTubers, these quote influencers, 
Have you ever noticed that all these videos drop at the same time and it's almost like they're all reading from the same script? That's because they're getting invited out to these expensive events and they're going out. And some of these are great content creators, but obviously their feedback on these brands that they probably already like, that's why they're there because they use these brands like Sony or, or like Samsung or whatever. But they're being sent these things for free. They're being taken on trips. They're being wined and dined, as it were, you know. And then they have embargoes and they have to do these kind of videos. That's the condition of them being wined and dined is they're going to release a video. And you can tell a lot of times when these videos drop that they've been giving rough scripts, even though everyone's a little bit different. They're all hitting the same points and it's all positive. Don't use that as your review. If somebody's being wined and dined and or paid and or given free, very expensive gear, take it with a grain of salt unless you really, really trust that person. I'm not saying it's always bad if a company sends you gear to review, right? But if somebody sends me gear to review, I'm also going to be very clear throughout the years, whether it was gear or software. No one ever gave me cameras here on Pro Photo Show. You know, they might send me software or something like that. Um, but I'll always tell you. Did I pay for this or not? If you watch my annual Lightroom versus Capture One review, neither Adobe nor Phase One likes me because I'm brutal about my reviews. And so I pay for those. If I compare Lightroom and Pac Capture One, I'm not a fanboy of either. I'm paying to use both those so that I can review them for you guys. And speaking of the Lightroom Capture One review, we'll be doing that as well coming up early this year. Now that all the new features are out and everything's landed, I do a review of Lightroom versus Capture One every year. And so stay tuned to the YouTube channel for that uh, over at uh, youtube.com forward slash Sime Studios if you're not subscribed there. And we'll see how those shake out. What does all this mean for 2024? What does this mean for our creativity? It means there's always new stuff to buy. And software and gear and tools are good. And you should use the best gear for you that inspires you the most. And when I say that, I don't mean like the most trendiest, biggest sensor. You don't have to go to medium format. You don't even have to go to full frame. There's some things I'll use full frame for, but a lot of times I'll use my Fuji. Not because it's crop sensor. I just like the way it feels in my hand. I like the dials. I like the fact that it's camera first, not computer first, which sometimes is how the Sony cameras feel, is that they're more computer than camera, even though their photos are great. If I want to go walk the streets, sometimes I feel inspired with a vintage lens and its imperfections, film, or with maybe my X100. And a lot of these, if, if I link stuff I'm talking about in show notes and underneath my videos and all that kind of stuff, and you can kind of look it over and see these different things, but decide what works for you. And I hope you guys will say in the comments, does full frame matter? Does crop sensor matter? Right? There's a point. My cell phone and its tiny sensor, they're getting better and better and they're amazing, but it, obviously that sensor isn't as good as either my crop sensor or my full frame. But the technology, the AI, all this stuff's going to keep evolving. And we'll talk more. I think we'll talk about AI. I'm going to try and get a roundtable together of other photographers so we can talk about how we feel and have a discussion that's not just me talking about what I've discovered in my ex experiments over the past month with AI and actually learning how to generate AI images outside of paid services using open source tools and stuff like that. And by the way, for spoiler alert, the free AI tools you can download like Fucus or something like that, which you can check out in the meantime, if you want to kind of stay ahead of this conversation, very easy tool to use that I've been doing some testing and making videos on the channel about. 
um, way better than the, the generative AI feel in Photoshop, which is honestly pretty terrible in comparison to what the rest of the AI world is doing. Adobe is not leading the pack in AI. They're actually well behind in terms of AI generation. Now, we have two kinds of AI, though. One is that you edit with AI. The, the three, really. One is completely AI-generated, which is pretty controversial, and for good reason. We'll talk about that more when we get a, when we get a panel together. The second is AI editing, where you do AI fill. You can replace clothes. You can turn a dress into a swimsuit if you want. The AI will just do it. Or you can remove massive objects. You can add a tree. You can take away a tree. I think honesty is important. And we've talked about things like content credentials, where you can see kind of the history, the life cycle of an image, and what it really is, right? It's fine to create digital art, as long as you're not taking someone else's content, which is another side of that debate that is a little confusing at times. But you need to be honest about what you're creating. And because of all this, I think that images that are natural doesn't mean we don't edit them. doesn't mean you don't use your actions or your presets or retouch them or something like that. It's that they're real people. They're real things. You haven't just cut and pasted your sky. You haven't put a tree here and a river there and changed the clothes of your model. If you're doing a fashion spread or making an ad spread for a commercial client, they're, they're focusing on their product. It's not a question of whether the photo is 100% real. But in a world where there's so many filters on people's photos, even coming from their phones, they're so filtered that you could purify the water with them. We're going to see a resurgence of, I want a real photo of you. It doesn't mean you don't take it well. You don't light it well. You don't use your shadow well to make them look their best. It's that you do it in a real way and people are going to start valuing that. So study those skills, study those in-camera skills and how we combine those with shadow hacking, with editing, things like that. That's what I'm going to be doing. That's what I'm going to be making videos on this year. Will I use AI tools where applicable? Sure. And if you come to the third type of AI tool, which is just assist tools, right? Like in Lightroom, where we can do AI selections. That that I use all the time. And I integrate that like into my speed mask presets, where I can just click a button. It runs the AI tools, and it builds me 10 masks that help me do enhancements that are easily controllable with opacity on a photo, but it's still the real photo. I haven't taken people out or replaced it. I've just used the AI tool to automate my process to integrate it into presets that I can use that you guys can use. You guys see me talk about this in videos and a lot of you guys use my tools and my presets and you know how that works. That is an increase to productivity as well as creativity because you try things with these kind of tools that you wouldn't, try so many variants of if you had to do everything manually but it's a different kind of ai ai assist tools are different than ai creation tools and i think those lines are going to be drawn too i hope to get a panel together soon and we're going to talk about the state of photography as we come into 2024 how ai is going to affect it and from a professional perspective right from our businesses what do we want to pay attention to so that we're not putting our head our heads in the sand regarding AI and the things around it, but we're also focusing on how is this a positive thing? How is it going to make photography, real photography, better, more profitable, more productive? And how can we, from a business perspective, tap into that? Definitely something we're going to be talking about more in the coming days. With that said, I have gone on for a while. We've covered a lot of little bit topics, and I hope I wasn't too all over the place today. 
I know I kind of integrated main topics and AI and vintage cameras and film and news all into one today. And normally I try to separate those with a little bit more of a distinct line. But I feel like all of this stuff really did connect today in a way that's important and in a way that as photographers, not image generators, photographers capturing news and journalism and things in the real world, it matters. Knowing our tools and equipment and how we edit and how far we go, it matters. It does. With that, I'm going to wrap up today's show and looking forward to the next one. Looking forward to your emails over at ProPhotoShow.com. And you can find the notes over at ProPhotoShow.com. And emails, by the way, you can send directly to ProPhotoShow at gmail.com. I do have a pick of the week for you, and I'm going to link it in the show notes. It's something I just recently picked up. Uh, and it's the Godox TT350. And I picked up one for Fuji. To me, with a flash, it doesn't even matter. Most of the time, if it works in TTL mode. But this is a TTL flash. But the reason I got this, this runs on two AA's, so I can put my my end loops or my rechargeable AA's that I use for everything in this. It's not a big, huge flash. But what it is, is it's compact. It's very compact. Not quite as compact as the Flash Q flashes, like the QM20, these tiny little brick flashes that fit in the palm of your hand. But the Godox is actually cheaper. It's more powerful. It's that traditional hot shoe flash where you can tilt the head, right? I I really like, and I did a review of that Flash Q, and I think it's been a pick of the week before. I'll link it in the show notes as well, the Flash QM20. And I just got the manual version. They make a TTL version as well. It's a really cool little flash. And what you can do with these little compact flashes, and what I loved about that Flash Q is it has the transmitter built in, so you can literally unclip it. You hot shoe it, and you can just unclip it from its trigger, and you can take it off camera. Really cool, especially for, like, street photographers and things like that. Although it appears that my trigger has failed. So I'm a little disappointed because I haven't even had it a year, and it seems like that trigger is failing. Maybe it's a fluke. I'm not going to be like, oh, Flash Q is junk. Because I actually really love that little flash. And I'm actually in the process of exchanging emails with them to try and figure out what's going on. Everything fails sometimes. And I think my feelings of the flash queue as a flash, as a company, will be based on how they respond to this situation. So I'll try to keep you updated on that. But the other option, these are kind of two different categories, even though they're very small. And they could be fit into the same solution, right? The same, cover the same problem. This is under 100 bucks. This 350, TT350. So this is smaller than like a big full-size flash, but it'll link if you use like other Godox lights and you have like the Godox Pro Trigger. So I use that Godox Pro Trigger to trigger my larger strobes. I have an AD600 Pro. I have a TT200, is it called? The triggers work the same. So I can use this as an on-camera hot shoe flash, but I can also grab that same trigger that I use for my big lights and take this with me. And this is actually really important. If I'm doing kind of on the go on location sessions where I don't necessarily bring the, bring the big umbrellas, I can still get really creative with light just with one small flash like the flash cue, like this Godox, because if I can get it off camera, I can shoot it literally through a pillowcase, a sheet, a hat. I can bounce it off a wall. I can get big, soft light because normally I'm shooting with a model or with one person, right? I wouldn't take this out to light a family session in the forest, but if I'm just trying to do some creative light, some dimensional shadow control on a model, some fill light shooting at sunset, 
a little light like this is great. And yes, if you're just doing fill light, you can shoot on camera. But as soon as you get off camera, you get that control. And so sometimes I'll literally take a blanket that's kicking around in the car, hang it from a branch of a tree, and I'll use a clip uh, with just like a, a tripod or a hot shoe mount on it. I'll link one of these. I'll link the the little clamp that I use. I think I'm using the small rig clamp right now. It works really good for this. It's just like a little three-inch articulating arm with a, with a quarter-inch screw mount on it. And so I'll take a little flash like this, screw it in, and I'll mount that to the branch of a tree and then just throw like a blanket over the branch in front of it. And I just created a softbox out of it. Is it the same perfect flawlessness of a my 30-inch parabolic, 40-inch, 48-inch? Probably not, but it works just fine. Doesn't mean I never use my big lights. Of course not. But if I want to go maybe do just a fun, quick-on-the-go session or if I need to do something simpler. I need to travel light with one strobe that I can take off camera. I can do all kinds of stuff. And so you definitely want a flash that's small in your kit that you can get off camera. Um, I'll link the flash cues as well in the show notes. But my actual pick for the day is this new TT350F. It's not a new flash. It's been around for a while. Basically, it's the Godox's smallest hot shoe flash. Not super high powered. Honestly, if you're talking about one or two people in a, in a photo, an engagement session, a fashion session where you're mixing, a lot of times you're mixing with ambient light. You're you're in the park, you're in a forest, you know, you're on the lake, something like that. These kind of flashes work phenomenal for that kind of work. And you can do a lot with them to give yourself that great ambient light. So that little Godox small hot shoe flash that's my pick of the week check out the show notes i'll link to all the things including like the little small rig clamp if i i assume it's still available that i use to mount this stuff i don't even remember the model number of it but i use it for a lot of little things to just just mount something and i keep it in my bag along with a little mini tripod things like that that might be small but if i'm on the go having them with me and be like oh i'm glad i brought that so i just keep them with me I'll put uh, various links to the things I mentioned in the show notes over at ProPhotoShow.com. And I'm looking forward to the coming episodes this year and the other people we're going to get here on the show. I hope you guys will leave some reviews for the podcast wherever your favorite podcast feed listener is and that you will spread the word to other photographers in your groups as we keep expanding the podcast for professional photographers in 2024. Say stay stay safe as we come into this new year thank you for being here with me it's it's good to be back in pro photography podcast 2.0 and we'll see you on the next one